pray together. Our Lord, we are grateful that we gathered together this morning to be able to come and be in your presence, that you have invited us this morning to come and to be in your presence. How sweet it is, truly, Lord, to be before you. You are our good God, even as we heard this morning. Your love for us is tremendous. Your love for us is great. And even as we come into this presence this morning, the wonderful, amazing thing is that you tell us to come as we are. And so for each of us, we come with various weeks, different weeks, hard weeks, great weeks, joyful weeks, depressing weeks. And the wonderful thing is that you don't tell us, leave your week at the door and come and pretend to be someone different. Instead, you tell us to come and to come before you as we are, because in you we find all that we are looking for. And so, my Lord, would you help us that we would come with no pretense. We would not pretend that we would come as we are because you come to us as you are and you are perfect and you are all that we need. So would you speak to us this morning? Would you help us so that our ears would be able to hear what it is that you want to tell us? Would you help us so that our eyes would be able to see what it is that you want us to see? Would you transform our hearts, Lord, this morning for all of us? That even for those who may be here this morning, Lord, that may not know you, would you open up their eyes this morning so that they would even be able to see you for the first time possibly? You are better than everything that our eyes have ever gazed on. Convince us of that this morning. Transform us even this morning. We pray and we ask you because you are the one that can actually accomplish these things. And so we ask you, our Lord, would you do these things better than we know how to ask it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, every so often, there comes a song on the radio that the, the moment it just comes out, it is an instant hit the moment it's released, right? There's something about certain songs that the moment we hear it, it just makes us feel a certain way. Like, sometimes it's the artist, right? Sometimes the artist just makes us feel a certain way, so we love that song. Or sometimes it's the beat. There's something about the music that just makes us feel a certain way. Or sometimes it's the, the contents, the lyrics, something that they're singing about, we just resonate with, right? The moment they start, we start hearing what they're saying, it just resonates with us. We have something about that song that we just resonate with. You know, for, for some of us who are here in Philadelphia, there's a certain song that really does do that for us, right? There is a song by the Fresh Prince called Summertime. <laughs> If you don't know what I'm talking about, shame on you, right? <laughs> Hopefully you're not a, a citizen of the city. Hopefully you're just a visitor. Hopefully maybe you'll go back to where you came from. <laughs> but for those who are from Philly, you know what I'm talking about. That song, Summertime, by the Fresh Prince, there's something about that song that the moment it comes on, it just does something to you. Because it kind of reminds you, it takes you back to back in the day when summer was great. That memory of of being out of school, of hanging out on the playground, playing and, and washing your car so that everybody would see, or, or going to barbecues because it was just so much fun. There's something about that song that takes you back. So literally, it could be the middle of December, right? And that song comes on on the radio, and all of a sudden you're turning up the radio dial, you're turning it up the volume a little bit, you're putting down your windows, and it just takes you back to the summer, of all the things that you enjoyed about life in the summer. Or, or for some of us, for example, it's uh, the song My Girl from The Temptations, for example, right? When My Girl from The Temptations comes on, it just makes you feel good. It's hard to hear that song and not feel good about life and, in, you know, about things that are going on. You know, for some of us, when we hear that song, it maybe takes us back to a memory in life, right? Maybe it takes you back to your first date. Or maybe it takes you back to your wedding day. This is a song that you guys dance to. Or maybe it takes you back to uh, back in the day when you used to sing this song to your daughter, right? It takes you back to a great memory. Whatever it may be, there's something about the song, My Girl, that just hits you every time you hear it. Well, more recently, there's been a song that's been released that has had the same effect for millions of people. 
right? If you're in your car for more than five minutes, if your commute is more than five minutes, you're almost guaranteed to hear the song at some point in your commute. It's a song, Happy, from Pharrell, right? It's too early to say whether it's going to be a classic or not, but there's something about the song that really just does resonate with us. You see, the song went number one in 25 different countries since it's been released. Since it's come out, in the first six months of it being released, it sold 5.5 million copies around the world. No other song in history has ever done that in six months, right? Since it's come out, there's been over 2,000 YouTube videos of people from 150 different countries all over the world taping themselves, singing and lip-singing and, and dancing to this song all over the world. And so it's not even just us here in the United States. People from all over the world resonate, resonate with this song, Happy. And so to call the song popular, right, would really be an understatement. It has gone viral. And, and you know what? Like, I get it. Right? I get why it has become so popular. I mean, just the fact that it really does just have a great beat. So the moment it turns on, you almost automatically start wanting to dance, right? But more than that, I think it describes everything that all of us are looking for. It, it describes deep down uh, what we are looking for. We are desiring happiness. And so I think if there's anything that the entire world can agree on, it's this, that all of us want to be happy. And so whether you're in Indonesia or whether you're in Indiana, this song resonates with us because it tells us of what it is that we're looking for. But here's the thing. Here's the ironic thing. As much as we all desire for happiness and we long for happiness and we do whatever we can to try to attain happiness, it seems like we're really struggling in being able to find happiness in our lives. Uh, listen to just some daunting uh, stats more recently. Researchers say that one in 10 Americans over the age of 13 are, are diagnosed as being clinically depressed. One in 10. Right now in the market, there are nearly 40 different brand name prescription drugs that deal with depression, antidepressants, 40 different prescription drugs. In the last 15 years, the use of those medications have increased over 400%. So that we as a people in this country are not getting happier as the years progress. It seems like we're still really struggling and trying to find happiness and we're not able to find it. You see, last week we said when we gathered together that we're taught from a youngest, the youngest of ages that what we are able to find happiness in, in is what we call the American dream, right? So from the youngest time, from the youngest of age, we're taught that things like power and status and wealth and possessions, that those things will be what gives us happiness. And so we work hard to fill our lives with those types of things. And so we convince ourselves of things like, you know what, if I just had that, or if I could just become this, that I would really be happy. But if we're being honest with ourselves, we know how much that has failed us time and time again, right? Those expectations have never really been met. I mean, how many times have we received the very thing that we were looking for only for it to get old really quickly or to, for us to be dissatisfied with it really quickly? Or how many times have we worked really hard, day in and day out, to try to achieve something, only to have it be nothing like what we imagined it to be? We work really hard to try to find happiness, and yet a lot of times we are left anything but happy. Well, here's the thing, right? What we're talking about here is far from just being a modern-day problem. It's not a problem for 2014 we read and we understand that this is a problem that has ex existed for thousands of years, for millennia, right? In fact, what we're looking at this morning is a passage of scripture that shows us that it's into this letdown of a world that Jesus entered 2,000 years ago. That he comes into this world to deal with this yearning that we have for happiness. And yet when he comes into this world, he doesn't come in and, and point us deeper into this world to find happiness. Instead, he actually points us deeper into a different world. 
He, he points us into a redeemed world, he calls it. And he says that it's this world that he has come to establish. You see, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to this world to turn this world upside down. Or, or maybe the right way of saying it is that Jesus came into this world to turn this world right side up. See, we don't have to search very far to see that the world that we live in is a mess. Right? It doesn't take too long for us to discover that. We have seen the way that sin has entered into this world and has corrupted everything. We see it in our own lives, in the way that we struggle with things, in the, in the destruction it has caused in our own lives. We see it in the world around us. Every single day you are promised to see something when you turn on Action News. You will see it. And so it doesn't take too long for us to realize that the world that we're living in is a mess. And so it's not even just that we struggle to be happy. It's rather that the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world is actually incapable of making us happy in the way that we desire it. The world will fail us every single time. And so Jesus has come, he announced, to make things right. He, he came to initiate this, this process of redeeming the entire world, to begin this process of making all things new, he says. To begin this process of fixing everything that we have broken. And so he calls this redeemed world that he has come to establish the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus walks into the, onto this earth, and, and as he begins his ministry, one of the first things he proclaims is this. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I know that the word kingdom can sound weird to us or old to us, like we don't know what we're talking about because we deal with nations and presidents. We don't deal with kingdoms. But what Jesus says is, is this kingdom is the, the correction of everything that has gone wrong with this world. This kingdom is where God will rule and reign and he will fix all that is broken. And he says, when I came into the scene, as I walked onto the scene, I came to initiate this kingdom, to establish this kingdom here on earth. And he says, in this kingdom, we'll actually find everything that our hearts are yearning for, that our hearts are longing for. And so at Seven Mile Road, we're actually in a season of being able to hear from Jesus as to what this kingdom is like, right? And so for the next several months, we're going to be taking a look at Matthew chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7. It's what often is called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And this Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're going to be taking a look at what Jesus is telling us about this kingdom. We're calling this series Citizens, because essentially what we see in these chapters is Jesus teaching those who belong to the kingdom, or rather, citizens of the kingdom, two things. He's teaching citizens of the kingdom basically two things. One, what the character of a citizen looks like, what the character of a citizen looks like, and then secondly, what the life of a citizen looks like. Right? He's saying, listen, I've come to establish this kingdom, and, and some of you will be a part of this kingdom. I want to show you what the character of your life will look like, and what your life will be lived like if you belong to this kingdom. And so that's what he's doing in these three chapters. But here's the thing. As we saw last week, we quickly realize that as we start listening to what Jesus is saying, that the things that he begins to say to us quickly go against the grain of everything we believe and are taught to believe from the time that we are young. You see, last week all we did was take a look at the first six verses of chapter 5. And every time he said something, it was almost like everything he says is paradoxical to what we believe happiness looks like, right? You see, these first 12 verses is called the Beatitudes, right? The first 12 verses of chapter 5 is called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude just simply means blessed, Right? And so you'll see him over and over again use the word blessed. Blessed are those, blessed are those, and so on. And that word blessed could actually be translated into another word, as Joe said this morning, into the word happy. And so he's saying, listen, do you want to know what happiness looks like? This is what happiness looks like. He uses the word happiness over and over again. And yet, every time he uses the word, it goes against the grain of everything that we are used to hearing happiness being described as. So, for example, he said last week, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That happiness 
isn't found in believing in ourselves. Think about that for a moment, right? Think about how often you have heard somebody say to you, all you need to do, buddy, is believe in yourself. Just believe in yourself. Or you know what? Somebody say, you know what? I really accomplished this because I just started believing in myself. I can believe in myself. And Jesus is saying, listen, happiness is found in realizing that, that you have nothing within yourself to believe in. That you are actually spiritually bankrupt. Right? That you have nothing to stand before God with. In fact, when the world tells you to have self-confidence, the Lord says, what are you confiding? What are you finding your confidence in? What is within you that you are trying to find confidence in? So Jesus said, listen, you don't work really hard to try to uh, impress God by the things you do. Instead, what citizens do is they marvel at the thought that the kingdom is actually filled with a bunch of spiritual beggars. The kingdom is not filled with a bunch of self-confident people or people who believe in themselves. The kingdom is filled with a bunch of spiritual beggars looking to God for a handout. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Then he goes on to say, blessed or happy are those who mourn. Consider that for a moment, what Jesus is saying. The paradox of that statement itself. Happy are those who mourn. But Jesus is saying, listen, when you realize your own spiritual poverty, when you realize your own sin and the destruction that it causes in your life and the destruction it causes in the world, it's not going to lead you to be indifferent towards that. It's not going to lead you to look at somebody else's life and be like, that's their problem. Instead, you begin to mourn. It causes you grief within your heart as you consider the sin in your life and in the world and the destruction it has caused in your life and in the world. And it says that when you realize that, it will lead you to depend more deeply on Jesus. You see, Jesus is saying essentially, mourning is good. Mourning is good because mourning will lead you to comfort. Because we find comfort in the fact that Jesus is making all things new. That through his death and his resurrection, you see, he's not even just fixing up things, he's eliminating things. He says that through his death and resurrection, he has come to bring an end to sin completely. He has come to bring an end to the destruction that sin brings completely. And so he says, though you may grieve now for a moment, your grief will be temporary. Because though we see sin here for now, sin will be removed completely. And so he says, blessed are those who mourn. Because as long as sin is here, you should mourn. But those who mourn will be comforted because there will be a day when sin will be eradicated completely. And then Jesus goes on to say, we learned last week, that blessed or happy are the meek. That being happy, we said, is realizing that your life isn't all about you. Your life isn't all about you. Instead, meekness leads somebody to consider that God and others are greater than themselves. That you have such a satisfaction in Jesus and you so trust in his provision that it frees you to be able to consider others and God is greater than yourself. And so you know what that means? What that translates into? You're not constantly living day in and day out fighting for more and more for yourself. Instead, you realize that in Jesus you have found everything that you need and that you trust so much in his provision, you know he will provide you with everything that you need and that even in the days to come that you will receive infinitely more than anything that you have sacrificed here on earth. And so Jesus says, you can be meek. Happiness is actually found in being meek. Consider others greater than yourself because you have already found everything that you're looking for. And then finally, we heard Jesus say last week, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We learn that the citizens of the kingdom, or even just all of creation, was wired and created to be satisfied by the Lord. Right? We were wired and created to desire and to be satisfied by the Lord. And so even though you and I run to all sorts of things like careers and money and, 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 and status, all sorts of things to satisfy us, Jesus says, listen, those things can't help 
but make you feel like you are restless and empty even when you receive those things. Instead, the hunger and the thirst that we're feeling can only be satisfied in Him. You see, feasting on Jesus is like feasting on fine food, right? When you feast on Jesus, fast food is no longer appealing to you anymore. And he says, listen, when you feast on me, everything else pales in comparison to what you have tasted in him. And he says, blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, they are the ones who actually will be satisfied. And so last week, Example after example was given to us of what life in this kingdom looks like, of what the life of a citizen looks like. And what we saw, again, was that every time he spoke, every time he said something, it goes against the grain of what we're taught that the good life actually looks like. And so he's saying, listen, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you belong to him, what he's doing is he's, he's inviting us this morning to see things a little differently, to repent we said the word repent is to have a different perspective on something, to see things differently than how you're seeing it right now. And so he's inviting us to see things differently. Because he's saying to us, listen, you're no longer who you once were. And you no longer are supposed to live as you once did. And so he's challenging us, he's leading us to live with a renewed mind, a different perspective on the American dream. He wants to show us where true happiness is actually found. And so this week, we're going to be picking up where we left off last week, at verse 7. And we'll consider what more Jesus has to say about life in the kingdom. In verse 7, he says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think it might be helpful for us just to begin by getting a definition of what we mean by mercy. I think maybe the most simplest thing that mercy means is just to simply to show pity, right? And so Jesus is saying, listen, happy or blessed are those who show pity to those who sin against you. Happy are those who show pity to those who sin against you. Now, if you and I could just be honest with each other for a moment, right? If we could sort of just talk off the record for a moment. If we were being honest, we know that as soon as we hear this, this sounds like nonsense to us. It's nonsense to us. I mean, I don't think we would ever come out and call Jesus a liar, but it doesn't really seem like he's being truthful or honest with us in what he's saying. You see, on any given day, all sorts of people sin against us, right? The people that we love sin against us. The people that we hardly know sin against, sin against us, and everyone in between has the potential and the possibility to sin against us. And do you know what rarely comes to mind when somebody sins against you? That I would be happiest if I showed pity to this person, or if I was merciful to this person. Let me give you an example. So earlier this week, my, my wife and I and, and my daughter, we, we actually drove out to a retreat site uh, for one of the upcoming retreats here at Seven Mile Road. And so we were going down to the retreat site just to check it out. So I, I gave them a call and I said, hey, we're coming out. We're going to come check out the retreat site. You can expect to meet us here at this time, right? So we get into our car. We start driving. We drive about an hour. We get out there. We get to the retreat site. We get out of the car. We go into the building and we go into the front desk area. Right? And so I begin by just introducing myself and say, hey, you know, I'm so-and-so, we were coming to check out the retreat site. I said, you know, would you do us a favor? Would you just show us where it is that we'll be eating and where will we be meeting and where will we be staying? Would you just kind of show us around for a little bit? And, you know, the moment that we got there, I knew that there was something off about just that situation. Because there was something about the woman's demeanor that you just knew that something was off. Because she doesn't greet us, right? She hardly even looks up. She doesn't stand. She doesn't even offer to show me around nothing. Instead, this is what she does. She's in front of her computer, and she looks up for a second, and she says, that's where you'll be eating. This is the room you'll be staying. And she looks back down again, right? And so I see that happening, and I'm sort of caught off guard, right? Because I'm not sure why that just happened. I'm not sure if I did something. And so I just I pause for a moment, and then I go, okay, um... How about, how about uh, breakfast and lunch? Like, what, what is the, usually the setup for that? Like, what, what do we usually eat for breakfast and lunch? And then she looks at me, and she's like, you can find that information on the website. 
right? So I'm thinking in my mind, like, we just drove an hour to get out here, essentially to, to show ourselves around and to find information on a website that I came here to find, right? So at that moment, I basically had three options. One, I could flip her the bird. <laughs> just a quick flip and we walk out, right? No, actually, she was much, she probably could have taken me, for sure. So, so that quickly not became an option. I was like, I can't, I can't do that. So the second thing I could do is, is to just make a, a lot of noise, right? To start yelling and be like, where's your supervisor? I want to see him right now or see her right now. I want to figure out what's going on here. I want to let them know how you treated me. Or, Jesus says, I can show them mercy. Jesus says, blessed, happy, are the merciful. Now hear me, right? Showing mercy does not at all mean just letting everything go all the time, right? We said last week that Christians are not just called to be pushovers. Like, there will absolutely be instances where something needs to be done and action needs to be taken. Like, if she was being abusive to us in some way or if she was harming us in some way, we definitely should be taking action. But if I were to be honest, the only hurt that I was experiencing in that moment was just a bruised ego. I, I hated the fact that she made me look like a punk in front of my family. Right? That's what I was struggling with. But Jesus says this. He said, blessed or happy are those who show pity. Why? Because at the end of the day, you and I both know that it's sin that causes this woman to act this way. As we said before, Jesus calls us to mourn over sin, not to retaliate when we see sin, not to be angry over sin, not to get defensive over sin, but rather that our hearts should be broken in the midst of sin. Why? Because we realize that we too are spiritually poor. We too suffer with spiritual poverty, that I have offended and hurt people through my actions and through my demeanor and through my words. But that even more than that, that I have offended a great God through my actions and through my words and through my thoughts. You see, there's no offense that was done to me that's greater than what I have done to God. There's no offense that was done to you that is greater than what you have done to God. But how did he choose to respond? It says that he had pity on us. The scripture says that he did not treat us as our sins deserve, but that he showed mercy. Now what Jesus is asking us to do is to show others the very thing that he has shown us. You see, when Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, they shall receive mercy, he's not saying this. He's not saying receiving mercy is contingent on us being merciful to other people. That we will only receive mercy from God by being merciful to other people. Because when you look at the verse, it really does seem like that. Instead, what Jesus is saying here is that the only way that you and I will be merciful to others is if we understand our own sinfulness. The only way that you and I will be merciful to others is if we understand our own sinfulness. You see, a person who doesn't see himself as being sinful isn't looking to receive mercy from God. If you don't see yourself as being sinful, you're not looking to receive mercy from God. But when you do see yourself as being sinful, it leads you to be merciful to others because you realize that you are in need of mercy. Because you realize that you have indeed received mercy. You and I can be merciful to other people because we have first become the recipients of mercy in our lives. We have offended God in every way. And yet our God did not treat us as our sins deserve. He showed pity on us. What has been done to us that's greater than what we have done to others? And so Jesus says, do you want to be happy? Happier than merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Next, Jesus says, blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What does Jesus mean here by this phrase, pure in heart? You see, the Bible teaches us that the, the heart is the core of who we are. The, the heart is the core of who we are as people. And so the things that come out of our mouths, the things that we think of in our minds, the things that we do with our hands, all of these things stem from our heart, what we believe in our heart. And so what this beatitude is telling us is that Jesus doesn't just want to deal with our behavior, but he wants to deal with our heart. And we'll actually see this over and over again in these next three chapters. We'll see instances of Jesus wanting to deal with our heart, not just with our behavior. For example, Jesus says that the type of purity that he's talking about is so deep, right, that he's not even just looking for a world with no murder. That's not even what he's looking for. He wouldn't be satisfied with that. He wants to go deeper. He doesn't just want to rid the world of murder. He wants to go deeper and rid the world of angry hearts. Think about that for a moment, right? If I told you for a second that this world would be a place where there is no murder, I think all of us would see that as a major win. But you see, Jesus' view of holiness is so different that he's not even just simply concerned with our behavior, the action of killing someone. He wants to see purity go so deep down into our heart that it affects the core of who we are. But you see, that's so radically different than the way that the world thinks and behaves, right? Because we're constantly taught that real change can be seen in something as simple as behavior modification. You see, my wife Sharon, she actually used to work with a prison population for many years, right? And so this prison population was basically uh, folks who were in prison, who had served time, and are now getting ready to get back into the world again, right? They're getting ready to be kind of assimilated back into the world again, so they're in this halfway home uh, trying to figure out what that looks like. Now, this, this prison population included all sorts of backgrounds, right? All sorts of crimes that were committed. She was working with folks who had committed murder and committed rape and, and people who had robbed all sorts of backgrounds. And so one of the things that they would do at the center is teach them coping mechanisms, right? They're saying when you go out into the world and when you face certain instances or when you feel a certain way, let me teach you how to cope with what you're going through. So, for example, one of the things that they used to do in the classes is to teach these prisoners uh, what they should do when they deal with anger, right? When they go back into the world and they feel anger again, they say, this is what you should be doing. And this is what they teach them. They say, when you feel angry, you immediately say, stop! And then you find a cold glass of water and you drink the water. If this prisoner goes out into the world and stubs his toe, I can see a cold glass of water being helpful, right? But what about when you go back into maybe a home where there's abuse happening? Or what if you go back into the neighborhood where people are literally trying to get back at you, trying to end your life? How many glasses of water will that take for you to be able to deal with that anger? It's easy for us to see that ideas like that, and this is, again, I'm not making that up. This is what we're teaching folks who are coming back into the world after a hard time of prison, that this is what they should be doing. We know that it's bound to fail. These mechanisms are bound to fail because at best, what they're doing is changing someone's behavior. But Jesus tells us, listen, a blessed life, a happy life, isn't found in modifying your behavior, but instead in having a pure heart. He's saying it's in the, the very core of who you are, in seeing your core change, that you are able to experience happiness. It's in realizing your need for your core to change that you actually experience happiness. Because the heart is the center of who we are. And Jesus says it's having a pure heart. It's those who have a pure heart that will actually be able to see God. Now here's the thing. If you hear that, that it's those who have a pure heart that are able to see God, it should immediately ask you or lead you to say, if a pure heart is what it takes for me to be able to see God, then what is my hope? How will I be able to see God? Because we know that it's not even just a prisoner that deals with heart issues. It's all of us, right? We know the anger that is in our hearts that has led to us manifesting that anger in a variety of ways, through the things that we have said, through the things that we have done with our hands. 
we know the, the, the lust that has been deep in our hearts and the way that it has manifested itself in a variety of ways, the things that we have seen with our eyes, the things that we have done with our lives. The, the envy, the, the pride that goes deep into our hearts. And so the question is, is, if my heart is filled with such things, how will I ever be able to see God? Well, the scripture says, you're able to see God by getting a new heart, by having a heart transplant. You see, when you trust in Jesus, he graciously gives you a new heart. Do you know why? Because he knows that no matter what you do, no matter how much you may try to change your heart, to change the core of who you are, nothing is able to change. At best, it will be behavior modification. And so what does he do? He gives you a new heart. And throughout your life, he is changing and transforming your heart so that it would become more and more pure so that we can see God. And see, this idea of being able to see God, it isn't just a promise for the world to come. It's even a promise for right now. You see, as God continually purifies our heart, we will see him more and more clearly here on earth. That, that our understanding of him will continue to change, that, that we will grow in our affections for him as he continually purifies our heart. But then Jesus says, listen, it's not even just that. What he has begun here on earth will be completed in the kingdom of heaven. So that what you see now in part, or what you understand now in part, will be fully seen and fully understood when the kingdom comes. That there will come a day, Hear this for a second. This is the, the promise of God. There will come a day when we will see our Lord with our own two eyes. Consider that for a moment. For a people who desire happiness so much, let me ask you, what greater thing is going to provide us with happiness? What, what greater blessing can we actually find in our lives than to see God himself with our own two eyes? So Jesus says, blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Next, Jesus says, blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And there's multiple ways for us to be able to understand what we mean by this word peacemaker. Right? There's, there's various ways in which God has brought peace to us. But this morning, I just want to look primarily at one way in which God has been a peacemaker. You see, the Bible tells us that from the moment that we enter into this world, we are born as enemies to God. The moment that we come into this world, we are born as enemies to God. God willing, my, my wife will be giving birth to a, a, a baby in the month of September. When that baby comes into this world, as we bring that baby into our home, we are bringing an enemy of God into our house. Now you may ask yourself, how in the world is that true, right? How is a baby or an infant an enemy of God? You see, what the Bible says is that an infant, a baby, is born sinful, and that his sin separates him from God. That his sin makes even a child, a toddler, believe that he is the center of the world. And for any of us who may have children, we see that it doesn't take too long for us to realize how true that is, right? Where do you think statements like, it's mine, or, or no, I don't want to, come from? Where does that come from? I promise, I have never set aside my daughter for a, for a second and said, listen, if you're ever in an instance where you're not getting what you're, you know, what you're trying to get, you just start screaming and say, it's mine, I want it. I've never done that, right? I've never done that. I imagine that most of you who have children have never instructed your children in that way, and yet this is the way that they act. This is the way that they are from the beginning. Because it's their sin. You see, from the beginning, their natural bent is towards sin, not obedience. From the beginning, all they care for is themselves. And here's the thing, right? If we were left to ourselves, it actually wouldn't get any better with age. Right? And so the, the it's mine at age two morphs into it's my life at age 22. Right? Or, or the no, I don't want to at age four turns into, you can't tell me what to do, at age 14 or age 40. You see, we're self-centered. We're rebellious from day one. And what the Bible tells us is that it's for us, self-centered, rebellious enemies of God, 
that Jesus came to die. You see, God is the ultimate peacemaker. God is the ultimate peacemaker because you and I who pushed God away and, and pushed his righteousness away from us from the beginning, God now comes and pursues so that he can find peace with you. That you who were enemies to God from the beginning now undeservingly are made children of God through Jesus and what he has done. You see, it's our story, right? That's our story of everyone who is a child of God. And Jesus is saying, listen, I want your story to become someone else's story. And so I'm calling you to live as peacemakers. I want you to help others to see the rebellion that they have against God. And I want you to help others to be pointed to Jesus who came to bring peace between man and God. Listen quickly to 2 Corinthians 5.20. This is what Paul, an apostle of Jesus, one of the earliest followers of Jesus said. He said, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Bible says that Christians are ambassadors for God that we belong to a different kingdom, that we are coming into this world to, to be able to communicate this message of peace that God desires all those who live in this world to see and to be able to hear. And so ambassadors are those who are so in awe of what has been done to them that it would be the joy of their heart to see it being done to somebody else. And so God says, beg, implore, Implore others to be reconciled to him, to return to him, to stop rebelling against him, so that they would know the same peace that you were able to know in your own life. You know, another word for peacemaker is simply missionary. Right? And what Jesus is saying to us, Seven Mile Road, this morning is, you are called to be missionaries. You are called that as those who have been reconciled to God, those who have trusted in the Lord, you are called to be missionaries. We get to. We get to tell other people about the peace that we have with God through Jesus. To share with them this gospel of peace that we have come to believe. To, through our lips and through our lives, communicate this great reconciliation that Jesus has brought through his death and through his resurrection. That others would be brought from being enemies to now children of God. So Jesus says, Blessed or happy are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You see, as children of God, we are simply doing what our Father did for us first. And now the last beatitude. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. It's sort of a downer to end a sermon on, Right? I mean, I think, you know, things like uh, purity and peace and, uh, you know, uh, mercy are much more palpable for us to be able to take in and much more easy for us to, to accept. But then we see, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. But what we'll, talk, what we'll notice time and time again is that Jesus is always purposeful in what he says as well as when he says it, Right? You see, this beatitude is essential for us to hear as we finish our study this morning. Because we said before, all eight of these beatitudes go against the grain of what this world tells us to believe and how we are supposed to operate. Right? And so when you and I try to live out our citizenship here in this world, we're inevitably going to rub non-citizens in the wrong way. When you try to live out your citizenship in this world, you're going to rub non-citizens in the wrong way. John Stott, who is an author and a pastor, he said this. He said, persecution is simply the clash between two irreconcilable value systems. Right? You see, when two different value systems go against each other, persecution is going to happen. And so Seven Mile Road, when you live as citizens of the kingdom, when you live in righteousness, you will be persecuted. When you live confessing the spiritual poverty of the world, you will be seen as attacking those who believe that they are good enough. You see, when we live mourning over sin and the destruction that it causes, you will face a world that tells you 
to lighten up that certain sins are not so bad. When you live with a desire for meekness, considering others as being greater than yourself, the world will see you as a pushover and try to walk all over you. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, desiring God above everything else in this world, you will face the ridicule of those who think that you're just wasting your life. When you show mercy to those who sin against you, you will face the pushback of a world that tells you that you should be giving people what they deserve. When you desire and strive for purity, it will be seen as an attack on the top industries and the vices of this world. When we live and strive for peace, when we try to live on mission, we will inevitably face the mockery of those who think that Jesus is just a joke. You see, what Jesus is saying here is, listen, when you live in righteousness, your desire to live in righteousness will always be faced with persecution. For some, it will be the potential of being put to death for what you believe, like the story of Miriam Abraham that we've been hearing in Sudan. For others, it will be your own family who go against you, who want nothing to do with you, who hates the, the passion and the heart that you have for Jesus. For others, it will be a world that simply cannot agree or accept with your desire to live righteously. You see, Paul, he said this. He said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to live as a citizen of the kingdom, when you desire to live out these beatitudes each and every single day of your life, you will be persecuted in some form, in some fashion. Jesus goes on to say this. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we hear this statement where Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you. Or that you should be rejoicing and be glad when these things happen to you. And again, it sounds like nonsense. Right? How can Jesus justify making statements like this? Because either it is the talk, it is the talk of an insensitive, immature theologian who has actually never felt the pain of persecution and the heartache of rejection, or it's the talk of someone who has actually underwent the greatest persecution and rejection in this world and makes a promise that only he can keep. You see, what we'll see in the scriptures is that we'll see all sorts of reasons as to why we should rejoice under persecution. But here Jesus simply says this. He says, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. There's much that we can say about this topic, maybe a sermon that could be preached just on this idea, but maybe this morning is sufficient for us to say these three things about what rejoicing in the midst of persecution means. First, persecution reminds you of who you are. You see, when you are persecuted for living out your life in righteousness, it reminds you that you are indeed a citizen of the kingdom. It's actually evidence of the fact that you are living a life of righteousness. Let me say this to you. If you consider yourself as a citizen of the kingdom, and your life isn't resulting in either persecution or conversion, then you have to ask yourself, one, am I really a citizen? Or secondly, am I really pursuing righteousness? Because Jesus says, when you do pursue this life that's being described in the Beatitudes, it will either lead to others coming and, and, and agreeing with what you're saying and coming and becoming parts of the kingdom, or people fighting against what you're saying and you being persecuted in some form. Persecution reminds you of who you are. Persecution also, however, reminds you of where you're going. So when you are faced with opposition, when people do fight against you in whatever way, verbally or, or physically, whatever it might be, it reminds you that your life is not limited to what happens here on earth. Your story doesn't end in a grave. Citizens are promised the kingdom. Persecution reminds you of where you are going. 
And then thirdly, persecution reminds you that there is a reward awaiting you. Right? You know, we can say all sorts of things about what this reward is actually talking about. There's all sorts of discussions about what this reward is actually talking about. But I think essentially what we want to learn this morning is this. That your persecution doesn't go unseen. Some of the battles that you have had with friends or family over Jesus isn't something that goes unseen. Some of the pushback that you have had from your friends or from your neighbors or from your coworkers about their differences in view and why you believe in these things and, and, and their pushback and their mockery doesn't go unseen. Instead, the Lord says that there is great reward in heaven for those who suffer here on earth. Brothers and sisters, let me hear, let me, I just want you to hear this one more time. Living out the Beatitudes will always result in persecution in some form. But Jesus says this, rejoice, blessed, or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Some of our road, we are all looking for happiness. Right? We are all looking for happiness. But Jesus reminds us this morning that true happiness isn't found in pursuing an American dream, but instead is found in living as a citizen in the kingdom. And this morning, if you belong to Jesus, if you are a member of, of this kingdom, he's inviting you to experience and to, to understand and know greater blessing, greater happiness by living out the Beatitudes. He's inviting you to depend on him more deeply so that your heart will actually live out and pursue and desire these things that he has taught us. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, and if you're not a citizen of the kingdom, that what Jesus is inviting you to do is to abandon the kingdom of this world. Because he's telling you, listen, it will always fail you. Instead, true happiness and true joy is found in the kingdom of heaven. And so this morning, he's inviting you to come and to trust in the king of this kingdom and to come and receive the great happiness that Jesus has come to establish here on earth through his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that as we consider your word, it is hard for us to consider these truths to be true 